to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, Neil Stevenson books, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Locke Kelly. Locke Kelly is an author, meditation teacher, psychotherapist, and founder of the nonprofit Open Hearted Awareness Institute. Locke teaches in a non-sectarian lineage based on the earliest non-dual wisdom traditions, modern science, and psychotherapy. As a licensed psychotherapist, Locke has been teaching seminars, supervising clinicians, and practicing awareness psychotherapy in New York City for 30 years. Locke is a graduate of Columbia University and Union Theological, and he spent 10 years establishing homeless shelters and community lunch programs as well as working in community mental health in Brooklyn, New York. Locke has studied extensively with non-dual teachers such as Adyashanti and Tulku Orgyan Rinpoche. And now, without further ado, the episode that I call Locke Kelly on Awareness, Freedom, and Effortless Vipassana. Locke, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. Hi, Michael. Thanks. It's really great to be here with you. Yeah, it's been a long time I wanted to have you on the program. We have moved in the same circles for about the last, I would say, maybe 10 years. That's right. And yeah, I got to see you at a meeting we had at Yale way back when I was still living in Los Angeles. So that must have been something like 2007. Yes. And that was part of the Bauman Foundation. We did a big meeting on brain science and meditation up at Yale. And then mm-hmm. I remember uh, riding back with you in a car and also mm-hmm. on the subway and so on, <laughs> even down to New York City. So that was fun. But that was, yeah. I think, the last time we really talked. I think that's right. Yeah, that was fun. Good. So since that time, you've been a busy boy. You've got at least two books that have come out shift into freedom. That was a few years ago. And now you've got a brand new one, Effortless Mindfulness or something like that. Is that actually available currently? Yes, actually, it's called The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. And it just was released uh, by Sounds True on June 4th, fresh off the printer. Good. So that's as much of a plug as we'll ever do on this show. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Good. So, you know, what's so interesting is in the past, I've always thought of you as like an Adyashanti guy. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, Locke Kelly, that's someone that Adyashanti trained and he does Adyashanti style Advaita, you know, non-dual stuff. But when I look at these books and see what you're teaching, it looks pretty different than that. So can you talk just a little bit about your background? I know that you do this in a lot of interviews, but I'd like to get a better sense of your background. I know that you started kind of thinking of things in meditation type terms and awareness type terms. You were thinking about awareness and so on in high school when you were playing sports. Mm-hmm you already started to get a sense of, you know, panoramic awareness and so on because of sports. But when you started actually training in a more formal way, Mm -hmm. what did that look like? Yeah. So you're referring to kind of a early experience. And I think as we all look back, there's these early experiences that certainly for me gave me a taste of something where my consciousness shifted into a more interconnected, joyful clarity. And for me, it was hearing at 14, a sportscaster say, 
he's got eyes in the back of his head. And so I thought to myself, okay, I wonder how they do that. And I somehow just started opening my peripheral vision, which actually was opening my awareness around and continued around 360 degrees, and then felt like I dropped out of my small mind into this field of awareness, but that it was also very embodied and interconnected. And I was playing ice hockey goalie at the time. So one of my friends came up to me after a game and said, man, you played great. How'd you do that? And I said, you really want to know? And so I told him basically what I just said to you. And he said, oh, cool, and walked away. But one of the seniors on the team came to me the next week and threw a book at me, which was Zen and the Art of Archery. So I immediately picked it up, read through it in one night and went like, oh my God, there's people who do this intentionally. And that led me at 14 to start reading about Zen. Then I did TM at 15. <laughs> then I had kind of a near-death experience when my appendix almost burst at 16. And then when I went to college, I went up to Rochester, where Philip Kaplu was, and did Zen sitting for a while. I remember reading Three Pillars of Zen when I was in college, which is Philip Kaplow's famous book. But I can't recall what style of Zen that was. Yeah. So he was involved with both, you know, doing shikantaza and with doing koans. But mainly this was just sitting practice. So shikantaza, very disciplined style. And so I went for a week-long retreat up there and got a feeling for that. But, you know, it wasn't as easy for me to do it in that formal style. I found that I had already kind of developed or was playing with doing it while my eyes were open and sitting, looking out at nature or just taking a walk or being in sports or in some other way of not trying so hard and not concentrating. So I ended up going to graduate school and first year in graduate school of a joint degree with Columbia University Clinical Social Work and Union Theological. I went on a fellowship to Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal. So in Sri Lanka, I did a bunch of retreats, five-day retreats, 21-day retreat, a couple 10-day retreats. What kind of retreats, Luck? So these were classic Theravada insight meditation retreats. One of them was doing the jhanas, but one of them was just doing four foundations of mindfulness. One of them was a Gwenka retreat, and the others were pretty much the Sri Lankan Theravada insight style. Now, it doesn't get much more concentrate and formal than that. So how did that go for you? Well, I mean, <laughs> it was interesting. I can remember after one, I think it was the second 10-day retreat, and the last five days was just no thoughts, complete stillness, feeling calm, noticing thoughts, feelings, and sensations coming and going, even any triggering of emotions would just arise. And there was, you know, kind of a choiceless awareness that let them go. And then at the end, I got on a bus at the top of this mountain in Kandy, Sri Lanka, and was traveling down through these tea plantations, and more and more people got on. And then <laughs> about an hour into it, a guy got in who was very drunk and was pushing his way through and 
kicked me right in the shin. And I was just like, and, and everything came back all at <laughs> once. And then he looked at me straight in the eye and just laughed and just went, ah, ha, 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 and then just walked on. And I was like, oh, okay. I thought I had achieved some stability, but that was in many ways just kind of a calm retreat practice. Yeah, the retreat center had stability. Yes, <laughs> and in the environment. And, you know, later on, I learned more about what I feel was the kind of state that that was, which was more like a jhana state. And from the neuroscience, it was kind of repressing the default mode network in the brain and allowing the task network of the brain to be primary. And that creates a calm state. And I can talk about that later a little bit more. But that became an interest later on to see what is really going on. What are these different states of mind? Where am I looking at contents from? Which level of mind or which type of awareness? And that's a lot of what became curious to me to really navigate my consciousness and start to feel what was the natural state rather than a transitional state. Right. So the fragility of that jhana was made very apparent. One more little section is that I kind of knew that and started to, you know, do a little less intensive concentration practice, a little more open, choiceless awareness that, you know, was still focused on the contents of consciousness. Then I went up north after nine months in Sri Lanka and traveled up to India. And interestingly, the Dalai Lama had just come back from teaching Dzogchen for the first time in France. And actually, there's a little book that is made of his talks there. But he was all excited, and he would give an audience to travelers. And I sat there and was fascinated and amazed at this talk and put my hand up and said, who can I go study with? And he said immediately, Tolko Ergen Rinpoche in Nepal. So I changed all my plans and jumped in a bus and went over to Nepal, then flew up from there and walked up the mountain to this little place called Nagi Gampa. And on the first day, after a little talk, the first pointing out exercise, which was sending awareness into the corner of the room and having it look back, I immediately felt the self <laughs> dissolve and a feeling that was within three minutes the same as at the end of the best 10 day retreat. And so I started laughing and crying and kind of with joy and said, could this be possible? And if so, I thought this is pretty much what I'd be interested in finding out more about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so how long did you stay and work with Tolku Urgen Rinpoche? So that was the interesting thing. I just stayed a couple weeks and it felt like, okay, you know, there's maybe more, but maybe there's not more. And I started to feel, oh, I see. I don't have to do a three-year retreat. Oh, I see. I don't have to sit and do long periods of meditation as the primary focus. And I don't have to join a monastery. I don't have to go into a cave. That which I'm seeking is already inherent, available within us. And it's, you know, one moment away. It's just this habit of construction of skandhas and identity and kleshas and patterning of consciousness that can relax and can be included from getting to know the nature of mind. 
Good. So I'm curious, you know, did you feel like the explanation given for this in Buddhist theory, do you feel like it exactly matched your experience? You know, you had been working on your own with this stuff for Mm -hmm. a long time before you went to this Dzogchen retreat. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly it's the same experience. Yes. But do you feel like their concept of what that experience was about matched your experience or did you have a different way of thinking about it that you felt was more in line with your experience? Yeah, I mean, I felt like walking up to this small place wasn't even a Dzogchen retreat. It was just like a gathering of people who just whoever arrived that day. And so that was immediately amazing. And then the initial description was pretty much similar to what I was experiencing. Somewhat of the explanation was more helpful, just particularly to clarify, oh, this isn't a meditation experience. This is who I am, to which experiences are coming and going. And that the absence or the viewing of contents isn't a meditative state, that it actually is this emptiness that is awake. The thing that was different as I went along afterwards was kind of filling in the gaps or finding that some of the teachings would stop kind of part way and call Rigpa or awake awareness just pure awareness. And others would say, oh, it's pure awareness that is emptiness and appearance. It's emptiness and clarity, emptiness, clarity, and bliss. So my experience kind of started to feel like, oh, it's more like these other schools that are more fully embodied, interconnected, more bodhicitta oriented, rather than just that pure awareness definition of Dzogchen. So I started to lean a little more into Mahamudra, which is basically the primary tradition, the Toko Ergen and his sons, who I continue to study with, Sony Rinpoche and Minja Rinpoche, I have both Nyingma and Kagyu traditions. So the Nyingma's more the Dzogchen and the Kagyu's more the Mahamudra. And I started to be interested more in the Sutra Mahamudra, which basically connects back to Theravada, to the sutras, then comes through Mahayana and actually was at its fullest in North India before it got to Tibet. So it's actually a pre-Tibetan North Indian tradition, Mahamudra, where people were awakening in the midst of their everyday life during certain periods of time. Yeah, the Mahasiddhas were Indians. So this is an interesting distinction that I'm fascinated by, and that is that this fundamental pure awareness is the basis of mind or the natural mind or or however you want mm. to put it. It's kind of the ultimate thing. But so many of them stop there. Yes. Like you just keep contacting vast spacious awareness with no content, and then you just do that more often in more places in your life, more deeply, and that's that. Yes. And to me, that's interesting because it retains that flavor of dualism of trying to transcend the world and get out of 
materiality, get out of the senses, get out of interaction with others and kind mm -hmm. of disappear into this contentless purity. And so it's got that sort of like idea of there's something kind of in samsara we're trying to escape, right? Yeah. And so it's fascinating to me how many traditions that are nominally non-dual and nominally kind of looking at this non-dual awareness and are actually very good at teaching people to contact it, kind of stop the program there, right? And just, well, there you go. You found it. Now just keep finding it, find it more deeply, find it more often, find it in more places and you're done. Yes. And as far as I can tell, you know, at least, you know, in my opinion, this is like, no, you're now half done. <laughs> you <know>? mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> You've gone halfway and it's a really important, cool, interesting, beautiful, powerful halfway. It's not mm -hmm. nothing, that's for sure. But now it's time to find that same awareness in everything you do, right? Constantly like that kind of tantric move of watching the lightning bolt or watch the fish breaking the still lake, right? The shocking, vivid moment of appearance coming into the world, coming into that awareness. To me, that's the full picture. That's really fascinating. And this is, of course, what Mahamudra and other traditions are trying to point at. Beautiful. Yeah. So I totally agree. That's what I found as well. And pretty much what I've been interested in is finding out within my own experience and within sharing it with others, how to experience that nature of mind, but then also following what's called recognition of it, then a very distinct movement called realization, which isn't just resting as the awareness, but then realizing, oh, the awareness is the foundation of where I'm aware from. And then when you're aware from this pure awareness, this is where the distinction with some of the non-dual and even the Theravada tradition, if you remain as a witness from no self awareness and you experience either nothing, which is pretty hard to do for a long period of time. And if you have to eat or continue to breathe, uh, as soon as you experience a thought, feeling, and sensation, my feeling is if they seem like they're birds or clouds, if they're coming and going, arising and passing, then you've gone backwards to a meditation state. That's really interesting. Please yeah. uh, tell me more. Yeah. So I have a couple of these kind of radical feelings about the contemporary exploration of how states of mind are different. So now we're leaving Sutra Mahamudra and we're getting into Lot Kelly Mahamudra, correct? Well, I mean, I can usually find support for everything I say in, <laughs> in the Mahamudra. It, the thing is about it is it's usually very poetic or esoteric. Yes. So I'll look at it, you know, one of the beautiful poems and say, yeah, see that? That's where they're talking about it. That's what that is a you know, book like The Flight of the Garuda or something like that, which is a restricted text, you know, only for those who have had pointing out instructions and things like that, which is another subject we can talk about later. But what you were saying is I similarly find people who try to remain in this halfway place of pure awareness or no self. There's a group before that 
that say that it's not actually awareness, it's just the deconstruction of contents. And, you know, the real pure Theravada won't use the word awareness. They say, well, that's essence. That's creating an essence. You can't say there's anything. There's not the self. Yes. A moment ago when I called awareness a thing, I was like, some people are going to (laughs) take exception to that. You know, these are fun because I have, you know, friends and colleagues in all these different traditions and we have a lot of fun, at least to a point. Sometimes it's not so much fun, they get upset or something. And I have my feeling about what works for me and what path I'm traveling and how I view things. And that's what it is. It's just my own experience and a view and my kind of path that matches me. So we'll back it up a little and then I'll get to that. So if you start with just looking at contents of consciousness, the question is, what is looking or where are you looking from? And if you're a real purist, you know, Siddhartha Buddha was kind of doing a, what's called in the Western theological tradition, the via negativa, which basically Correct. means I'm not going to yeah. tell you <laughs> what anything is. <laughs> I'm just going to say, take it all apart and see what happens. Because he was in a certain cultural time where the Hindu tradition was very God is this, God is Shakti and Shiva and Krishna. And so this is the method. But then, you know, as Mahayana and Mahamudra and Tibetan Buddhism and even some schools of Theravada evolved, they started being curious about, okay, so what are we going to call this that's left? You know, it's obviously beyond words. So we all agree on that and can't be described. It's not a thing but some kind of emptiness that's aware. So emptiness that's aware, we'll call it awake awareness or awake emptiness or something like that. So now the next question is, can a human being, can human consciousness move from identified consciousness to mindful awareness to awareness aware of itself? So there are schools that say no. And then there's others that say, Yes, awareness can be aware of itself without content. That emptiness is awake and emptiness can know it's awake. Experientially, that certainly seems to be the case. That seems to be the case. For those who have experienced it and for others, they're not so sure because maybe they haven't experienced it. And certainly there's little traps within that where you actually make it kind of an intellectual position or you're aware from a mindful witness that is still a meditator. And then, you know, for those who said, yeah, I'm aware from awareness. And then I'll say to them, okay, so where are you aware from? And they say, well, like I'm looking down or I'm looking from the sky at these things coming and going. And then I say, well, where's the back? If you go back, is there a back to the location? Can you look behind the camera? And then usually that awareness that looks back, which is one of the magic moves of Mahamudra, all of a sudden opens to beyond the meditator, to the infinite quality of awareness. And then often for some, it'll come right back and be interconnected with everything. Yeah, that move of looking behind the body or stepping out from behind the body or whatever is like tremendously effective, instant way to contact non-dual awareness for most people. Again, in my interest, I was always like, okay, so what is aware? Where is it aware from? And if you start from identification or attachment, how can awareness 
be aware of awareness if you're not aware from awareness. This is the seemingly funny paradox. And you can't, because you can't be aware of awareness from thought, from the doer, from will, from effort, from concentration. You can't even use attention. And actually, I don't believe you can use mindful awareness that's aware of contents of consciousness to know that awareness can't know awareness because it's kind of a meditative point of view. Well, plus all of those are powered by awareness. You mean powered by awareness, meaning awareness is inherent within them? Yeah, they're already using awareness. Right. So it's still just awareness aware of itself. Yeah. You know, on one level, any form of consciousness is awareness based and is some, you know, flowering or patterning of consciousness. But to get back to the source, you can't use the flower, can't know the non-object. So I kept looking for what are they saying? And, you know, you can look in many of the wisdom traditions like Taoism has the secret of the golden flower. And the secret is turn the light of awareness around. And this is the sublime truth. So the light of awareness, where is the light of awareness? How do you separate that out? What does that feel like? And what I did is I kind of reverse engineered the whole process. So once I felt like there were certain pointing out that worked, and now I was in this awareness that was none other than energy and form, this kind of interconnected field of awareness, then I feel how I become contracted and identified and kind of go back to a small sense of self. And then I feel like, how, how can I return? And what I found is that what is happening is that awareness is kind of localizing or identifying. So what I call local awareness, which is when it's focused in one area, can unhook or separate out. And you can feel it happen. It can step out or open and return home to the non-local awareness, the empty awareness, and then almost kind of like dissolves into it. And then from spacious, infinite field of awareness, when you're in that awareness and you become aware of the first energy movement particle or wave, the key is, can you feel that it's made of awareness? Can you feel and know that it's not a second thing that's moving or arising, that awareness is not just still, but it's dancing and it's patterning and it hasn't left its source. And now there's not two things going on. There's not pure awareness and materiality. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is awake. And then emptiness is energy. And then emptiness is form while it remains interconnected unified field of intelligence arising like an ocean of awareness arising as a pattern like a person. And that feeling is really the fullness of this Mahamudra style ability to have awareness be the moving, knowing, awake consciousness rather than a doer or a meditator that is separate like a sky observing arising and passing. 
Yeah, this is so fascinating. I mean, when you're talking about what you're calling local awareness, people tend to feel like awareness is coming from a spot, right? Usually a spot around their eyes or behind their eyes. And that there's just a sort of a unexamined, naive sense that awareness is emanating from the spot behind my eyes. And when I'm doing, let's say, Vipassana meditation on body sensation, it's almost like the light of awareness is in a lighthouse up in my head and it's beaming a spotlight down onto these different body parts. And that's how I'm knowing them. And of course, you can make a lot of progress even meditating that way, right, for a while. But eventually, you know, you're going to see that the awareness isn't actually coming from there. You're just kind of artificially coupling the feeling in your head with awareness and saying that feeling in my head is where it's coming from. But the weird thing is, and I think you focus on teaching this quite a bit, is you can just kind of decouple those two things. Now, when you decouple them, it's interesting because for some people, the next move is that the place awareness seems to be coming from in their body moves around. It's now I'm meditating on the sensations in my stomach so intensely that it feels like awareness is centered in my stomach. And some people do the more radical move of like that you got shown from Tolku Organ, or you can just move it out into the room, right? And have it located somewhere in the world around you. And it works just as well. It's a little harder for most people, but oddly, it's not impossible. And then there's the third thing of, well, or don't locate it anywhere. Don't give it any center. So I think you go through those three moves, correct, in the way that you're teaching now. So what about how you're teaching this is radical or different from how you were taught it? I feel it's just kind of a contemporary form in some ways. If you look at any other educational thing that we have learned about ourselves, it kind of progresses not only in the information, but in kind of filling out the pedagogy or the teaching style or how to communicate it to certain different culture. I mean, that's obvious just following it from South Asia to North India to China, Japan. So here it comes to the United States and here comes more of the Mahamudra Dzogchen, which has stayed more strongly aligned with Tibetan Buddhism, even though it's not originally Tibetan, it's actually pre-Tibetan. So the opportunity is similar to some of the insight meditation, not only to bring new metaphors, but to bring new teaching styles and to fill in the gaps of things that are said kind of a little too poetically or esoterically or not as clear or pragmatically, but not just to add words to them, but to really feel first of all, what they feel like to me, and then see whether others, colleagues feel the same movements or way that things are related and connected. And then to find a way to experientially teach others to move their own awareness. So for instance, what you said about what I call the inner door, the outer door, and the kind of immediate door. And I even have 
more kinesthetic doors for more physical type people, auditory door, visual door. But those inner and outer can awareness when it unhooks from that little place behind your eyes where you're watching your breath from and it unhooks and goes down inside to be aware of your breath from your breath. Can it go deeper into the space between the atoms? And when it does, it usually will then open up to the emptiness within and all around, and it will end up in the nowhere, and then it'll end up in the everywhere. Or it can be once awareness is unhooked from the thinker and the doer, the unique thing I say to people is, when I say unhook awareness from thought, I'm not asking you, the doer or the thinker or the ego to unhook that awareness. I'm talking to you, the awake one. I'm talking to awake awareness because awake awareness is not passive. It's able to live an awake life. So awareness can unhook, step back, drop and feel your jaw from within. It can drop below your neck and go subtler. It can feel the space, the energetic aliveness, the changing qualities and the awareness within your breath. And then it can go so deep that it actually opens up to be aware of the space in the room. And then it's as if the awareness mingles with space or finds that there's an awareness that's already aware without your help. That is not only outside, but seamlessly like a field outside and within. And that it's not separate from the movement. It's actually the ground, the boundless ground from which movement and change are dynamic expressions rather than coming and going, arising and passing. So they're still coming and going, but it's intimate connection rather than creating a detached witness. And that's more of the, you know, kind of tantric feel to it. Yeah, it's got the Vajrayana lightning bolt in there. It's very nice. You know, to go back to the fact that you were talking about as you drill down in a sensation and it feels like awareness is actually in the sensation, this to me is something I learned from meditating with Shinzen Young, who of course actually has a Zen and even Shingon or Tantric Buddhist background. So although he's teaching Vipassana, he's steeped in these, you know, more Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions philosophically. And so it's interesting when I read books or talk to other colleagues, other teachers who are doing Theravada style Vipassana, you know, they tend to only talk about cessation happening as you drill down into a sensation. But this other thing you're describing is there also and actually much more available. It's like you drill down. It's like I remember going through layer after layer after layer of like impermanent activity, impermanent activity. And then all of a sudden it would just open up into vast space. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, something really different is happening here. And working with that over time and realizing, oh, even doing just straight up dualistic Vipassana, if you do it deeply enough, will open up into non-dualism, right? It opens up into the space, but people aren't typically talking about it that way. 
Right. So then it becomes, like you were saying before, your model. If your model is the end goal is pure awareness, then when you get there, you're going to stop. And in the more classical insight meditation, Vipassana, if the awareness isn't just cessation, if it opens to space and not only opens to space, but space is awake and that's where you're aware from, you can take a model and say, oh, well, that's just something that's coming and going. Let's get back to cessation. And that's what I find with most people and what's called natural awakening. If I say, I'll bet everyone has had moments of awakening in your life and how many people agree and like almost nobody will raise their hand. And then I start talking about it, say, now go ahead and think back to your childhood. And they start going like, oh yeah, when I was like rock climbing or when I was sitting by this lake when I was 12 and when I was, you know, all of a sudden it's the same as the Buddha story. You know, the Buddha's story is that after all the striving and doing the intense meditation and renunciation and taking food, then remembered, oh my God, when I was a child sitting under a rose apple tree on a beautiful afternoon with nothing to do, with my eyes open, just looking out over the field, that's what I'm looking for, that feeling of interconnected joy, bliss, but I'm sure, you know, also spacious interconnection. So yeah, that's the thing. So it is a little about the model or the map, and then secondly about the instructions. So that's what I've been, you know, working with the more Mahamudra map, but then kind of filling in the blanks and then really upgrading the instructions. So there aren't many instructions. And even my friends who have done three-year retreats in all different styles say there aren't that many instructions for recognition, realization, and abiding. And I have, you know, about five different people who have read my books and who are students who have done three-year retreats who say, why didn't they tell me this, uh, you know, ahead of time? You know, this is so much simpler. You know, why do we have to go through all that? Because, you know, it can be translated into the same principles, but now more effective for our culture. So can you give me an example of a side-by-side, like here's the traditional Mahamudra instruction and here's the Lakkali instruction for the same thing? Yeah, so one of the classical Mahamudra instructions is first you're aware of movement and then you're aware of stillness and then you're aware of stillness and movement as not two. Yeah, my understanding is that's three separate Mahamudra meditations, right? You're meditating on the moving mind, the still mind, and and both together. And both together. So that, in some ways, is kind of a simplified version of four foundations of mindfulness. It's just looking more at movement rather than sensation, pleasant and unpleasant feelings and thoughts and mind objects. But it's looking at stillness and movement. So then it starts saying, so now just simply rest as that awareness that's aware of both. So there you go. So then I'm like, okay, now how many of you who are sitting here or are sitting there with these six different highly trained teachers and talking to the students, how many of you got that like at the end of a 10-day retreat? And, you know, it's like one out of 40 (laughs) got that resting as the awareness. And then the ones who got 
rest as the awareness, then I will ask them, all right, are you able to rest as the awareness? And they'll say, yes, it takes me, you know, five day retreat, or it takes me three hour meditation, or it takes me one hour meditation, or it takes me, you know, 20 minutes. Okay, now you're resting as the awareness? Yes. So that's Rigpa? Yes. Okay, so now are you resting as the awareness, or are you the awareness that's aware? And what's the relationship to what's moving? So those are next two steps that aren't often followed kind of in that sequence. So you rest as awareness. It's almost like what you were saying before. You rest as the awareness. And the hope is that from the pure awareness, everything else will be included. And there's some tendency to say, you know, just be, don't try to do anything. Yeah, because the tendency is if you're resting as Rigpa or awareness, awake awareness, and then you say, okay, now is awareness aware of itself is the next question. And now as awareness, are you aware of the next arising movement, thought and feeling? And is it separate? What is it made of? So the tendency is, oh, that's too much. You've gone back to your mind. Just stay simple, just be the awareness and it'll unfold naturally. But if you've worked with local awareness and non-local awareness, spacious awareness, you start to realize it's not just passive and it is so awake that it's not motivated to keep going. It won't necessarily unfold by itself like naturally, like putting a ball at the top of a hill. It won't necessarily roll downhill. The tendency is more to pull you back actually into the old habit or just rest there. And, you know, if people are resting and I say, what's it like? They're like, I don't want to say, I'm just like. Yeah, I'm hanging out. I'm, I'm hanging out. I'm like, well, and then I'm like, okay, so can you be aware from there? And they'll kind of nod. And now without going to your mind, speak from here. Just say, feel the quality, feel what it's like, and just let word arise. And that will then start to embody the awakening if they can do that but and they'll feel the difference if they have to go back up to create a thinker or a doer to do that but if they don't do that they'll be on the cushion and feel that resting as awareness and then as soon as they stand up to go to lunch they have a calmer more stress-free ego to which feels good <laughs> but it isn't an awake consciousness. So the premise is awake consciousness can move and walk and talk and look and do and use your hand when you need it and use thought when you need it, but then drop thought if you don't need it. And there's a sense of peace of mind. And there's also a sense of embodied open heartedness, which is really the next pointer that I end up with that not all Mahamudra systems go to. One of the systems has four levels of mind and they talk about the fifth, but I add the fifth. So I have five levels of mind. So their four levels of mind are everyday mind, which we all know is just identified consciousness, ego consciousness walking around. Then subtle mind, which is meditative consciousness, insight, meditation for foundations of mindfulness, the ability to subtly 
shift out of everyday mind and observe that thoughts, feelings, sensations, mind objects are coming and going from a detached, subtle mind. Also, that second part could be subtle body, where you drop into your body, feel your breath from within. That's still subtle body and subtle mind. So that's the second level. Then the mm -hmm. third level is pure awareness or awake awareness. The fourth is called simultaneous mind. They do emphasize that from awake awareness, now you're simultaneously awake and you include subtle body, subtle mind, ordinary consciousness. So you have the ultimate and the relative simultaneously here. And there's a little more of the Dharmakaya, pure awareness to Sambhogakaya, energetic field of interconnectedness, and then Nirmanakaya, ordinary consciousness. And they're simultaneously here. You're not in one or the other. You're not back in mindful everyday mind or in subtle body or in pure awareness. But the fifth, I think, is open-hearted awareness or heart-mind or bodhicitta, which feels like it's where you actually can walk around as this boundless heart and this tender heart and this sense that you've dropped from head to heart and the intelligence isn't located in a thinker in your head, nor is it spaced out in a field of awareness. It's kind of a interconnected, compassionate wisdom. But it literally feels like you're aware from your whole body all at once and the infinite awareness, or the infinite awareness is more connected to kind of the center of your body, like literally like where people put their hand on their middle of their chest. Now, I presume that as one is walking around, you know, in the simultaneous mind or even in the next layer, the open hearted awareness, there's still like normal thought and feeling arising. It's just not being identified with in the normal way. Is that correct? You know, there's a sense that, you know, like if I stop talking and just check, thought is in the background, like the thinking mind. If you looked at a brain scan, fMRI, you would see activity. But it's almost like automatic thoughts are not coming up on the screen of the mind. But if I needed to think, if I needed to say, okay, what's my phone number? I could call it up, but I actually feel like it arises in the center of my body. If I say, if I feel like, okay, yeah. what's my phone number? It's almost like it arises in my heart space where it used to draw me back up to this little place. So there is some kind of decentering, and there's some kind of moving of, it's not thought stopping, but it's just like the river is in the background, like people talking in the background, maybe, you know, at a restaurant or something. But I'm not on the train of thought. Yeah, this is certainly in line with what I was taught and what I've experienced also is not that it's somehow you know, you're walking around with just complete empty mind. Instead, you know, the thinking and feeling machinery is doing its job. It's just not the center of what's happening anymore. You know, the fMRI shows clearly that there's no such thing as no activity in your brain. There's movement, there's what I call mental sensations and physical sensations. 
but it's much more quiet and it's much more spacious. And interestingly, like mental sensations are part of a kind of energetic bliss. So it's literally like if I just stop and feel or if I just feel even while talking is happening, there's a space in my body and dancing energy. And there's also kind of a little friendliness of interconnection to everything in the room. And there's just more capacity for thoughts to be in the background or if emotions arise for there not to be a collapse. That's right. Isn't that the craziest thing? <laughs> I mean, I often try to describe this to people that eventually the stream of thought feels like some kind of hot tub or just a stream <laughs> of pleasant activity. It's, yeah. it's utterly relaxed and pleasant. You wouldn't want it to stop. No, that's right. Or why would you do that? It becomes incredibly almost like delicious. Yes. But it's not like you're involved in the content in any that's way. That's right. Yeah. I feel like a kid on the first day of summer vacation, you know, you feel like, ah, oh, everything's cool. What am I going to do? I don't really care. You know, I'm just going to be. So there's some kind of joy and potential. And then that bliss or that feeling is literally, I mean, there are uh, research that has shown that when you're not referring to thought and when you've balanced your default mode network, so you don't have task mode on with one pointedness or observing internal only, that the endorphins and low level chemicals of bliss are active as the normal state of what a human being who's not in distress, trauma, anxiety or depression is just the normal way you feel. So you feel like a puppy or a cat or something, the way they look like they're feeling. Exactly. Right. I'm curious. I think you probably spend a lot of time teaching people to unhook a local awareness and so on. Let's just say it's already easy for someone to rest in spacious awareness. Yeah. Rest in the natural mind, rest in Rigpa, whatever we want to call it. Now, you described how you would kind of fill in the gaps yeah. in the traditional instructions to help them move out of that. Are those the normal instructions you would give to someone in that condition, someone who's really good at contacting yeah. emptiness? My main thing was like, okay, if I'm going to teach, I'm going to teach the way that I've wanted to be taught, which is basically have respect for another person's journey and their own language and where are you starting and what doors are good for you and which way is easiest. Let's start there. So where everyone is, I'll just curiously say you want to just check it out, you know, like play a little bit or do some fine tuning and you can report what's true for you. So it would be, you know, to have them report, okay, go and do whatever you do that you usually do. And then let me know if you can speak, you know, imperfectly, because no words will be exactly true to what's happening. But I'll, you know, play with you. And then they'll say, okay, so now I was centered in my head. And now I'm open to a more spacious awareness that I'm aware from, you know, or I'm now aware of spacious awareness. And that's who I am or something like that. I say, okay, so are you aware of the spacious awareness and now are you where are you aware of it from and so sometimes they'll feel like oh i'm aware from my head or from my body to it like there's an arrow going out i say okay well see whether 
awareness is aware, can awareness be aware by itself from the room, from the space? And then they'll kind of like fine tune themselves and go like, okay, yeah. Now is it aware by itself without your help? It's aware of space. Is it knowing or have a clarity? And now is it just outside or is it equally outside and inside? Or when it comes inside, does it get caught? Or is there a kind of a seamless field? And now where are you aware from? You know, where are you aware of the awake space from? And now where are you aware of your knee from? When you're aware of your knee, so I'm not as interested in the content, I'm interested in what's aware feel like, where are you aware, what's the relationship? If thought arises, is it a bird that's coming and going like you're a detached observer? Or can you wait like right at the pure awareness to feel what the next energy, sound, movement, thought, and just see if you can feel where it's coming from, what it's made of, not analyzing from your mind, but just feel it from the not knowing that knows, and then follow that out to feel whether the awareness of your hand, now the awareness of an object in the room, are you aware of the object in the room from your mind? So where is your mind located? If you're aware from your mind, then what does it feel like? The object, the lamp is known from. And now you start to feel that everything's arising in mind, but mind is in front of you and back of you. And you're arising in the mind and the lamp's arising in the mind. And it's kind of interconnected. And then often feel, is there kind of a ground? Where's the ground? How does that feel? The ground, when you feel a ground quality. And then that's where, you know, they'll often report, well, it's infinite, but it's here. It feels safe, feels interconnected. You feel like you could respond from there. Yes, I could respond, but I don't need to think to respond. So these kind of feelings of, and then do you feel some kind of, what does aliveness feel like? What does your body feel like? Where are you aware of your sense of joy or love or is there any loving kindness or joy just check is there any compassion or does that make any sense from here and someone said oh i was gonna say that i was gonna say like unconditional love but i didn't know where that came from or when that started and so they start to feel the open-hearted bodhicitta feeling of friendliness and loving kindness so then you just let that kind of fan itself rather than needing to imagine it. It starts to show up as a natural quality of awake consciousness, what they call punta zangpo, which is not only the emptiness, but the qualities, natural qualities of compassion and bliss and emptiness. So things like that. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. That's fascinating. Yeah. 
another thing that comes up kind of naturally or spontaneously or seemingly out, you know, bubbling out of this ground of being mm. very easily is like childlike wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It gets really childlike, really wonderful. Everything's kind of the first time it's ever happened sort of feeling. And, you know, you read about historical accounts of some of these Rinpoche's, very, very famous Mahamudra or Dzogchen Rinpoche's who literally like play with toys. Mm. You know, yeah. they're like 70 years old and they've got like children's toys that they just keep playing with and giggling because there's so much childlike mind there. Yeah, And so to me, I go back to psychology. Sometimes I even reach back to Freud, whatever we think of old Freud. It's some interesting mm-hmm. ideas. But, you know, when he was talking about oceanic awareness, because his friend had learned Advaita and, mm. and was discussing it with him. And in Freud's conception, you know, this is just the mind of a child. It's the mind before we had any concepts. And of course, he labeled that as regressive and, and so on. But if we leave behind that pejorativeness and say, sure, you know, the mind of a child is the mind of awareness with no concepts. Mm-hmm. You spend your whole childhood and young adulthood learning these concepts to layer on top of it so that you can do what you need to do in the world. But I'm curious, you know, does that match how you experience it, even though you now have a fully adult mind that's very competent, that can do all kinds of things, and that doesn't go away, that in another sense, you're contacting the mind that was there when you were a baby? Mm-hmm. Or is it very different than that for you? You know, there's a couple layers of this. One is certainly that the awakeness that we are is always here no matter what's happening. So it was here when we were a child. It was here when we were struggling through adolescence or whatever. And it's here now. It's different when it joins with whatever human development level is happening. So a child could be aware of awareness, aware of their wake nature prior to thought because they're in primary process thinking. Then they develop secondary process thinking, which is what Freud called language. And then I call it tertiary process wisdom, which is basically that you're not going backwards, but you actually go forward to wisdom mind, which frees you from the creation of an ego identity from your ego functioning. So as a human being, you know, we're dependent as children. And then we have to develop ability to function or individuate. And so we develop certain functioning, but then we create an identity out of the functions. And we think we're the thinker. And once we are relieved of that, we find both what was prior and what is beyond, which is an intelligence that can use whatever conditioning and it can heal some of the conditioning and the parts of us that have been wounded and the parts of us that have contracted or tried to create protection and knowing parts out of the small limited knowing and limited worldview to try to live well and relate and create in the world. So then from this kind of loving, open-hearted awareness, there's an awareness of kind of these younger parts, and there's a freedom of the mind to not have to be the 
commenting adult and the judging adult, but to be able to function with a kind of freedom that's a little bit like a child's freedom, but is also has the knowing uh, of an adult. So, you know, I think Ken Wilber's done a good job of clarifying kind of mix of human development and spiritual development as kind of a line and level. And so I think there's... Yes, I I was certainly not trying to make a pre-trans fallacy out of it. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm just kind of trying to point out that that awareness has always been there. Yes. And that we're different now as adults with fully functioning egos, and we've been trained and we can use all that. So it's a different brain. But this state of awareness has some properties we'll recognize going back throughout our entire life, right? It's not alien or some new thing we're cultivating or some kind of fabrication, right? It's been there all along. Yeah, it's been there all along. So the other side you're saying is kind of what I said before, is it does feel like a child on the first day of summer vacation. There's some freedom or joy of like putting the burden down of like, oh my God, I don't have to worry about everything. Like, you know, 99% of the stuff I'm worried about, there's nothing to worry about. So you're immediately (laughs) like, oh good. So there's a lot of space to just like look, and you're looking from that heart mind from that non-thought-based awareness mind. So everything is fresh. There's not a projection onto it which projects or matches it to past association memory and thinks about, oh, that reminds me of my childhood when the lamp that looks like that lamp that was in the living room that, you know, you're not doing that on an unconscious or conscious level. Everything's kind of seen fresh in the now. That's right. Yeah, it's a wonderful feature of contacting that. Another question that comes up for me is, traditionally, Mahamudra includes a lot of yoga, Mm. or at least posture stuff where you're getting in certain body postures, and you are using a yoga strap and stuff like that, as well as pranayama, Mm -hmm. right? Lots of pranayama breath work to help people to enter these states or to go deeper or in, at least in the language of Mahamudra, you know, to access energetics, you know, subtle energies and so on. And so has that come up in your exploration as you're trying to westernize this? Have you found that the more yogic parts of the practices are useful where we're doing pranayama, where we're taking postures and so on? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's good, you know, to talk to you on this podcast. I could just speak frankly. Yes. Yeah. I feel like that some of the preliminary practices are good for some people, but almost none of them are required. You know, so I happen to have been a very physical person and have always done sports and stretching. And, you know, so my lungs and my body and my, you know, felt like I naturally would do physical things and my system is pretty open and like in retreats that I lead, I always do movement. I do both some basic yoga and some spontaneous Qigong where you actually go first into recognition of awareness and then simultaneous mind and then embodied presence dropping from your heart mind and then let your body start to move whatever way it wants. And then some people will get up and do kind of a 
Qigong, others will go into yoga, some people will start to do some kriyas, some people will shake, some people will go into like the stillest sitting they've ever had. So I almost like let the intelligence of awareness lead the way. But if you find like you have a tight body or distracted mind, the basic principle is soothe the body and the mind enough to access the awareness, which will then soothe the body and the mind to the next level and actually go to the root of what is causing the body and the mind to be contracted and suffer. So ultimately, the recognition, realization will soothe your mind and body, and then you let it do adjunct things. And I think that's the thing in our Western culture. We're starting with having already done a lot of mental training, focus, concentration. You know, there's kind of an implicit moral development, like the Eightfold Path that, you know, obviously people, you know, whether they're monastics or not, are at different places of being ethical or not ethical. But most people who get involved have had a cultural ethical training and they've had concentration training. So my other radical thing is I don't feel that the one-pointed training is that necessary for most people. And for a lot of people, they can't do it and they try to do it. Other people who do it like I did when I did it too much and did this kind of one-pointedness and got into this, what Sokni Rinpoche calls stupid meditation. <laughs> what I teach is to open awareness up into the field and then be aware of the energetic field in between and aware of your breath as one point from the field. But you're really more aware of the field of awareness that you're surrendering into and letting that awareness be aware of your breath. So from there, you're actually practicing the integration of relaxation and focus or non-dual awareness and interconnection with form and activity. So, you know, from some of the research, the attentional system of one point at a focus is a completely different system of awareness than non-dual awareness uh, that's embodied. So literally, it's almost like doing a lot of push-ups every day, but then the next task of realization is walking up the mountain with your legs. But all you've been doing is, <laughs> is doing push-ups. So that's kind of what I'm finding is there's some reason to soothe the body and the mind and to find clarity and focus. But if you can shift into that mind, which is already focused and clear, and don't stay out there in the spaced out awareness, but actually be aware of the energetic connection and the ability to focus outside or inside, then you actually balance your awareness. Your default mode network is balanced. So you're able to be equally aware inside and out simultaneously. So that's probably one of my three main practices that I teach that is about embodiment, is the ability when you're aware from the non-attentional awareness, which is the awareness that's not this mono-focused attention from the middle of your head, but you're aware from the field of awareness, the spacious awake awareness. You're aware of the energy that's inside and out, sound, movement, inside and out. You can be aware of the space equally inside and out at the same time, the movement inside and out at the same time, 
the awareness that's inside and out simultaneously. And when you do that for three minutes, three to 12 minutes, there's like a click that your default mode balances and you feel this seamless interconnected and it shows up in the fMRI and the feeling is kind of unity consciousness or you know like a tantric loving connection with everything that feels safe and a feeling of you know what people call oneness or unity or interconnection or tantric bliss <laughs> so in terms of other things that we do as adjuncts what about psychotherapy yeah so i've been involved in several discussions on this podcast recently with people who are talking about the many things that meditation won't do for them yes, and many things that psychotherapy won't do for them. And sometimes there's an overlap. There's part of it where meditation and psychotherapy kind of do similar things. And then there's a lot of areas where they don't overlap at all and you need both. But I'm curious if you think that psychotherapy would help someone to do this. I mean, is it kind of analogous to the body where as long as you get your body to relax, that's as much as you need? And so you just need to not be caught up in a bunch of intense neurotic anxiety and that's enough to contact awareness in this way? Or do you think more is required or none is required? Hmm. The most important preliminary practice is probably... <laughs> the one the one that doesn't exist the one, in traditional Mahabhadra. The one that doesn't exist, exactly, which is why it makes it an important contemporary Western adjunct. And, you know, I teach that in my books and I teach that in my retreats. I integrate a certain kind of a Mahamudra psychotherapy that, you know, you could call it mindfulness-based, but it's not deliberate mindfulness-based. It's effortless mindfulness-based psychotherapy where you first notice that thoughts, feelings, sensations are coming, going, they're not you, which is the deliberate. Then you realize, oh, they're interconnected with me. They're not separate. And then you start to realize that there are small parts like the mind objects that have thought they were you and have <laughs> remained like subpersonalities or they try to sit in the seat of the self, you know, usually in some part of your body or they get a hold of something. So yes, the preliminary practice of psychological maturity, maybe that's the most important thing is to feel like you're growing in this Western way to wake up and grow up. And, you know, I guess I would say if you wake up and don't grow up, we have seen the results both historically and certainly very clearly in recent times where many of our spiritual teachers from all traditions of Buddhism and others have acted out sexually, with money, with power in ways that are as if they woke up and their level of maturity was more like an adolescent. So then they tell themselves that, oh, well, I'm a wild yogi and <laughs> I could just you know, have people do whatever I want because the culture of some of the guru yoga is also that there's this dependency on the part of the training of students to act like children. So they're regressed and then the teacher hasn't grown up. So 
part of it is almost teaching in a democratic style so that we're all equals and we're exchanging information and trying to help each other as equal adults who you know have our willingness to be honest and look at where we are you know my training is as a psychotherapist and a meditation teacher so i've always taught both and so that training as a psychotherapist the ethical training the training to understand what transference is and countertransference is immediately shows you that you know people will treat you like you're somebody else and they'll want something that isn't part of your role so learning how to stay within the role of a teacher or a therapist that i feel like you can't grow up all the way unless you wake up but you can wake up then you need to continue to grow up or i would recommend it or that's my interest is to continue i would say it that way you can wake up and not grow up and maybe that's a crazy yogi and there may be something to that but the feeling is that there's something in the embodiment and the living of a bodhisattva or a awakened life that requires a maturing and when you really drop into a more embodied heart's eye view you really start to feel other people are yourself and there's more of a humility and equality feeling and then we have to you know do some training around our cultural conditioning where we were trained maybe to be different treat people differently and so the psychological work i do i've actually been co-teaching with a guy his name is Dick Schwartz he started something called internal family systems ifs and i had a very similar system to him so we immediately connected but here's the bottom line without going into the whole system is that the healing of complex trauma so these are people who have had trauma ongoing for years and years severe cases inpatient outpatient has been shown that what is one of the most helpful ways to treat complex trauma is by accessing this open-hearted awareness the sense of no self self and when people are you know allowed to or guided to find out who this self is that is aware of the part of themselves that feels shame and trauma the part of themselves that's angry at themselves and they can be aware well who's aware of the part that wants to hurt yourself and who's aware of the part that feels unworthy and who's aware of the part that wants to act out and they say well i am and then you ask them well how do you feel toward these parts when they're in themselves they say well i feel compassion toward all the parts toward the angry parts and the hurt parts and the acting out parts oh are these parts aware that you're here with them and they say yeah they are and the history is that introducing people to their true nature can only be done with advanced students and what we're found is not only is that not true but it's probably more important and as easily done with people who would never even be considered available people who have traumatic history can be introduced to their true nature and it's important for their healing and the people in between who have just a little trauma which is the rest of us or medium trauma or a lot of trauma but not super trauma those media in between people can be introduced to their true nature and it's 
possible to live an awakened life, and it's almost necessary for the healing of our individual psyche and I think for our culture and this time in our world. Yeah, it's fascinating. This internal family systems or IFS model is becoming increasingly popular, and I hear about it a lot in people talking about working as an adjunct to meditation. For example, the previous interview I did was with Chula Dasa, and he was talking about the work he did with Doug Tarin's bio-emotive framework. And the bio-emotive framework is basically a kind of IFS or very similar therapy to IFS. So this seems to be a really interesting direction. Now, you kind of beat me to the question (laughs) here, but I'll ask it anyway. You know, of course, traditionally, Mahamudra or any tantrism absolutely requires a guru. Hmm. And, you know, not just maybe or sometimes, but always, all the time. And usually involves years of preliminary, you know, like basically kind of groveling or whatever, I guess we could say, uh, practices worshiping the teacher and so on. And so aside from just the fact that you need, you know, like let's say you're learning to play piano, it's really helpful to have a piano teacher show you some stuff. Do you feel like any of the other roles, the traditional roles of the guru are actually legitimate or, more importantly, actually necessary, particularly the sort of energetic transmission stuff that is, you know, highlighted and featured in the traditional versions of tantrism? I will say no. (laughs) And then I will explain why I say no. (laughs) That's that's the short answer. Are they necessary? No, they're not. I mean, this is where it's fascinating to really look at the three major traditions, starting with Siddhartha Buddha, right? One of the main things he did was take away the guru. So, you know, the last words are begin and persevere. And, you know, the teaching is asipasiko, right? Find out for yourself. Yeah, come and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself. So let's go back to the roots. That's why I like Sutra Mahamudra, because I'm going back to Buddhism at its roots, no guru and certainly coming forward from that insight meditation tradition. It's being taught, you know, somewhat different levels of variation, but to a lot of people by people who have, you know, more like basic training, but they're learning basic mindfulness or insight meditation, and they're not gurus. So even the most trained don't call themselves gurus. They just call themselves Dharma teachers. Yeah. And then we go to Zen, yeah. and Zen very simply just says, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. So, so there we have another little, little radical move, like don't make anybody a guru. Don't think anybody's more Buddha than you, because the bottom line is we're all Buddhists. Although Zen also you know, is very concerned with transmission and lineage and so on. You know, you've got to get your transmission from your teacher and all that. So there still is some of that in there. I mean, there's, I mean, they say transmission outside of scripture. So it's not the book. Certainly, you know, a teacher is teaching and what the word transmission means is also, you know, um, very important in this discussion because 
Some people are, think it's come to be thought of as energetic transmission, almost like um, Shaktipat, like what Muktananda and Guru Mai, and as if that's transmission, as if it's energy. But actually, the pointing out instructions is not a transmission. Pointing out instruction is pointing out that your mind is the same mind as my mind. It's already there. It's not going from anywhere to anywhere. There's nothing moving or transmitting. The transmitting is the other use of the word, which is I'm telling you, I'm showing you that if you take your awareness and look back, what do you find? Oh, it's always been there. Well, is it more in me than you? No. It's always been the same, hasn't it? Yeah, that's transmission. So that's the other thing. The true nature cannot be energetically transmitted. So to me, that energy can be a support for some people, but it can be as much a seduction for others. That what is transmitting, I take transmission as showing or pointing. And that just requires that you have a sense of being able to show somebody something or, you know, teach them experientially because you kind of understand or have an experience that you're able to fine tune somebody. So, you know, the Sutra Ma Mudra tradition there we are in the Mahasiddhas, our fishmongers and housewives, and everyone's just waking up. They're all sharing with each other. It's a democratic tradition. They're not a lot of gurus. Everyone's just showing each other the, you know, look, check this out. Look at your own face. You know, oh my God. So the feeling is it's more dangerous not to point out your true nature at this point than it is to point out true nature. <laughs> and secondly, it's actually more dangerous to just go and sit a five-day Vipassana retreat, even with great instructors, and just deconstruct your mind without pointing out that there's another operating system here that can catch you. Because Willoughby Britton's done this study about people going to do insight meditation retreats where you know, if you just sit there and let your mind deconstruct, you get flooded by your unconscious material. And so I feel that let's teach the full thing right away. So my sense is I'm going to not only talk about the problem, I'm going to show you the solution. The solution's already here. So shift out of your small separate sense of self, this contracted pattern of thought looping on thought, that's creating a sense of a thinker or a little mini me in my head that I keep self-referencing and shift out, but don't stop in not knowing or don't know mine because that's a gap. And don't just deconstruct and watch contents coming and going because you're either in a mindful witness, you've created a meditator or you're just deconstructed your ego and your ego defenses, and you're about to get flooded by your parts. So go immediately from separate sense of self, unhook awareness, go through the not knowing the gap, notice the space, and notice that space is awake. And once you notice that you're awake from space, just long enough to realize it's aware by itself, and that you're aware from there, notice that the energy is arising from there, not separate, that's embodied, 
interconnected. There's a feeling of a ground of being, a new kind of safety, an intelligence from which you can begin to learn to speak and talk, and that when you see from your heart-mind that you could respond and you're actually more like a Tai Chi master, that if you needed to protect yourself, you're wide awake, your eyes are open, and you can, you know, do this in the New York City subways, which is where the advanced practice that I do and my students do is practiced, rather than having to go away to a mountain top only during a retreat setting to find a guru who will teach. Sometimes the last time I went to a Dzogchen retreat for seven days, the guru said, I'll teach the first half of pointing out this year and the second half next year. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And waited till the seventh day, you know? So I'm like, okay, I think we might need a little more upgrade. So that's my feeling. I mean, I literally, it's great to talk to you, Michael, of course, because we both are heartfelt, interested in how to do this. I'm totally you know, ethically, you know, involved in being uh, socially engaged and doing this in a way that I'm, you know, not about, uh, I don't even like applause. I'm not trying to make a lot of money. I'm, I'm like saying like, the water is really good. Come on in. <laughs> you know, that's about it. That's about <laughs> all I'm interested. Like, you got to check this out. It's not dangerous. It literally, there's no danger in this more than anything than learning to drive a car or is more dangerous than learning Vipassana, learning self-improvement of any kind or no self-improvement, that if you shift out of and that the map has what you shift into, and that is this loving self, that's why the people who have trauma are very afraid of dissociating or spacing out or you know, they find this loving self and they're like, oh, there's more space and I can be aware of negative and positive. And so the feeling is that, you know, a therapist is not a guru and can help somebody find themselves or a teacher who's trained and has experience can show somebody this. And, you know, I get reports obviously from my books and my tapes from around the world, you know, maybe 50 emails a month from people say, you know, I've never had a chance to go to any retreats, but I really am so grateful because I've been feeling like this is what I've been looking for all my life. I didn't realize it was possible for me. So that's with no contact. That's just reading or listening. You know, when I taught Vipassana, I did have people that would have breakdowns, run out of the room, just like will be Britain is seeing. I've not had anybody who has anything except a part of them that gets triggered say, oh, the part of me is afraid of opening space. Okay, well, let's, you know, go to that part, work with that a little bit. Now come back. Now just let the part know we're going to open up and come back. How's that? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. So I think there's a democratic, you know, almost like a teacher training ability to be professionally engaged with sharing this. And it's so important for our times. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Having taught Vipassana a lot for many years, because of my background includes a lot of non-dualism, it includes a lot of Tantra, yeah. 
Vajrayana or Hindu Advaita or even Hindu Tantra. I've just taken to day one teaching, contacting spacious awareness, Mm -hmm. contacting the nature of mind. And not only does it seem to really inoculate people against these kind of crack-ups as you're describing, Mm -hmm. it really actually changes the whole mood of the thing dramatically. Mm -hmm. Not only does it do that, but it actually weirdly makes learning the Vipassana easier. And I did not expect that. It's like, oh, they're actually taking to the deconstructive part of the Vipassana even more readily and understanding how it works more completely with this framework of, you know, vast spacious awareness as the background. Yes. Right? It's very powerful. And of course, it doesn't fit in the normal Theravada philosophy, but it's just completely run-of-the-mill Mahayana philosophy. And of course, Mahayana and Vajrayana include Vipassana. Yes. So it's not some kind of radical move in terms of the history of Buddhism, but it's certainly radical in your typical, you know, Vipassana retreat. Yes. But some Vipassana people like, you know, Tara Brock says, I teach Vipassana still the same way I've taught it, but my experience is what you describe, you know. (laughs) So her own experience. And she says this, you know, out loud to people, you know, and I just feel like I'm very supportive of colleagues teaching this. I think it kind of naturally unfolds the way you do. And just to say related to at first, the reason I connected with Adi Ashanti in the beginning wasn't because we were teaching the same way. It was almost that, oh, here's somebody else who has the courage and the confidence to feel like, oh, we can introduce them to this without danger and you know, immediately teach awakening in a way, you know, with somebody who has tremendous integrity. And he came from not an Advaita tradition, but a Zen tradition. So he had a very similar Buddhist understanding of non-duality, which is different than the Advaita in that some of the Neo-Advaita definition as if pure awareness is non-dual, meaning not dual. I call it not dual awareness, but actually in Buddhism, Non-duality means pure awareness that's none other than form. So it means the two truths. The two truths, the ultimate emptiness that's awake is arising as the relative reality, and they're not two. So non-duality means tantric unity, and that's what emptiness means, too. Emptiness means there's no separate sense of self. There's no separate thing that exists by itself. So it doesn't mean everything is nothing. It means everything is interdependent, therefore interconnected. Therefore, it's all this mind that's arising as an awake field that's interconnected, but it's awake. And when you're aware from here, then it feels safer. That's kind of the amazing thing is that people think, oh, if you deconstruct your ego and go to not knowing, or you go to no ego, no ego defenses, then you're going to get flooded. But if you go to the interconnected, loving field of awareness, then such a relief. And then the parts of you that have been repressed will start to come up, but then they'll say, oh, you see, I'm here. Now they go, okay, I'll come back later, you know, like, or 
Or if they come up, they're like, okay, you know, you're welcome. There's plenty of space. And then this kind of integration of embodied awakening. So in some ways, you know, like psychology is a preliminary practice, but then once you have an initial awakening, then it's important because you have to walk around off the cushion and the way things arise during the day is not just thoughts, feelings, and sensations. You could treat them that way. But if you do, uh, the way I've found is I feel detached. I feel like I have to have this kind of monitor, mindful witness, like lifting, you know, moving, eating, thoughts. Oh, there's a thought arising. Oh, that's a story. Oh, that's a feeling. Oh, that's an emotion. Whereas when you feel there's a part of you, then it feels like, oh, there's kind of a, a mind object that arises and has an opinion or an attitude, but it, then it responds to kind of a loving presence and kind of starts to unburden itself. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting towards the end here, but I just want to ask you, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what are you personally investigating in your own spiritual practice these days? What's like the bleeding edge of fascinating new experience for you in that realm? Yeah. My main passion in general is learning what's real, what's true, and how to share it. So I'm very interested in, okay, how can I meet people where they are and their learning style and their obstacles and help translate and transmit, meaning teach or show or create experiential exercises and variations to help people awaken and to encourage and create that. For myself, it has to do with kind of feeling more vulnerable, more <laughs> grateful. It's like that blissful feeling that feels like there's this boundless heart and then there's this almost tender, compassionate feeling that you know brings more of my emotional life that is just about sensitivity or vulnerability. It's, I guess, like maybe culturally growing up, you know, as a male, just kind of repressing a lot of that dimension of sensitivity. And then even in the first practices of meditation, kind of appreciating the transcendent, you know, less attached, observing qualities, and then now feeling more embodied and more open-hearted, letting gratitude or sensitivity or, you know, just feeling more fully life, life's beauty, but it's almost like it's tender-heartedness. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, yeah. Locke. And thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. I look forward to more dialogues with you on and off the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, 
I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource, and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.